Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, the technology has far surpassed it, but almost 30 years ago during Operation Desert Storm, the Iraqi war machine was completely overwhelmed by the coalition's forces' abilities. The ability to strike strategic targets with never-seen-before accuracy. Unknown to the Iraqis, special operations forces have been dropped deep behind enemy lines, and these men provided bombing coordinates and first-hand reports on bombing effectiveness. To avoid unintended targets, what we now call collateral damage, pinpoint targeting was often necessary. A soldier standing on the ground would request an aircraft high overhead to drop a laser-guided missile, and then using a handheld laser, he would light up the target. And the rest, as they say, is shock and awe. We need that pinpoint accuracy this morning with our text from Romans chapter 9, or chapter 10, excuse me. There is a single word, the very last word in the Greek in verse 9. So they say. It sums up Paul's entire message. In English, it's four words. You will be saved. In order to understand it properly, though, we need to put away the night vision goggles to shut down the radar and let the outside communication go silent and just concentrate on the near context of those words. For the last chapter and a half, Paul has described a distinction between the Gentiles and the children of Abraham. He was explaining the odd outcome that Jews who pursued righteousness were unjustified. While Gentiles, who never pursued righteousness, were justified. And he does so by talking about two different kinds of righteousness. The first is the righteousness based on the law. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul would personify that righteousness, calling it Mount Sinai. It's a righteousness connected to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. It's a righteousness codified in the sacrificial systems of Exodus and Leviticus. It is, in his day, the present Jerusalem with its morning and evening sacrifices. It's not just, do this and God will be happy with you. It's John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. It's a righteousness that takes the sword to met out God's justice by the letter of the law. At the start of chapter 10, Paul summarizes their attitude this way. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Instead of pursuing the righteousness of God, they pursued a righteousness according to the letter of the law, a righteousness of works. Why? Well, quite simply because they stumbled over Jesus. Drop down to verse 11 in your text. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It comes from their scripture, the Jewish scripture. It's actually a snippet from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And even though Paul gives us just this one line of the verse, he would have the reader call to mind the entire text. That's something we do all the time, right? 
If I say four score and seven years ago, you know I'm referencing the Gettysburg Address. And automatically you call to mind Abraham Lincoln's thesis, all men are created equal. Well, the whole verse from Isaiah reads this way. Behold, I, that is Yahweh, am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be disgraced. And that stone propels us to another stone in Isaiah chapter 8. And he, again Yahweh, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Luke's gospel is filled with the Jews stumbling over Jesus and the law. They stumble over the question of the Sabbath in chapter 6. In fact, they do it twice in 6. On a Sabbath, when he was going through the grain fields, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain. Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus' answer, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. They stumble over Jesus' fellowship in chapter 5. After calling Levi from the tax booth, Levi throws this great feast with a lot of his friends, just a whole bunch of tax collectors. And the scribes and Pharisees grumble to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. And finally, their stumbling would become rejection. Chapter 23, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus was crucified. And here the story would end, but God Verse 9, but God raised him from the dead. For Paul, for the church, we cannot overemphasize the pivotal role of the resurrection. We just finished during Epiphany what our, our walk through Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Recall chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. If in Christ we have been hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Sean McDowell drives home the point of the resurrection with a rather interesting experiment. He writes, I place a jar of marbles in front of my students and ask them, how many marbles? Well, they respond with different guesses, 221, 168, so on. Then after giving them the correct number as 188, I ask, which of you is closest to being right? While they all agree that 168 was the closest guess, they understand and agree that the number of marbles is a matter of objective fact, not one determined by personal preference. Then I pass out Starburst candies to all of them. And I ask, which flavor is right? As you might expect, they all felt it was a nonsense question because it had to do with their individual preference. That's correct, right flavor has to do with your choice. It's subjective. Then I ask, are religious claims marbles or starbursts. Most conclude they belong with the candy, which opened the door to discuss the objective claims of Christianity. It's based on the resurrection. While many may reject the historical resurrection of Jesus, it's not a claim of the type, it's true for you, but not true for me. 
the tomb was either empty or occupied. There's no middle ground, no preference. But the tomb was empty. The religious leaders, the Romans, everyone with means, motive, and opportunity to prove otherwise totally failed. Which brings us to the second kind of righteousness. In the opening verse, Paul asks, what does it say? It that speaks here is the righteousness based on faith we learned about in verse 6. It's not a starburst question. It's not wishful thinking. It's grounded in the empty tomb. Faith has content. On the first day of the week, very early before the dawn, taking the spices they had prepared, the women went to the tomb. But the stone was rolled away. And they did not find the body of Jesus. And behold, two men in dazzling apparel showed up and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He lives. He lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. That content produces confession. Jesus is Lord. Verse 9 of our text. Our New Testament ears miss some of the magnitude of Paul's claim here. Jesus is Lord. This is not anti-imperial sentiment as in Caesar is not Lord. It's not simply slogan of identification. Similarly, in our own day, Middendorf writes, the main theological freight is not about the lordship or sovereignty of Jesus. It's about identity. It's about Christology. Go back to that text from Isaiah in chapter, verse 11. Everyone who believes in him, the him there is Yahweh. It's God himself. And the same thing with the concluding verse of our text. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a citation from Joel chapter 2. And again, it's Yahweh. How do we know? Well, the word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we proclaim. And now it's time to see how Paul uses the righteousness of faith with that laser-like accuracy to comfort and assure us. Notice how the text manipulates four terms in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And then verse 10, with your heart you believe and with the mouth you confess. It's the same terms, but he's inverted the order. It's a chiasm, a literary or rhetorical structure that focuses our attention to right where they cross. And the focusing in this case is accompanied by a progression. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is raised from the dead. And there, right in the center, right at the cross, is sothese, that Greek word. You will be saved. The righteousness of faith has content and confession that knows that Christ has done all things for us, on our behalf, in our stead, for our sake. It's totally a gift. And the righteousness of the law? Well, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He fulfilled it perfectly, his act of righteousness. He suffered the penalty for our failure to do so, his passive righteousness. His righteousness has been placed on you in baptism. You are saved. But still we struggle. The righteousness based on faith, the righteousness we've received, is not without temptation. And one of the challenges we face is falling back into misuse of the law as we struggle to find our new life in Christ. Jason Lane puts his finger on it when he writes, What hangs up people the most about the righteousness of faith is the foundational assumption 
that the law is the real tell us, the real end of righteousness. Obedience and fulfilling the law is our goal. Therefore, after we've been made righteous by faith, we've got to get back to being righteous according to the law, to fulfill it just like God said we should. No. Christ is the end of the law, as Paul writes. He's the end, not only of the curse of the law, but of its very demands. Not that we disgrace, disregard the law. Instead, we believe that Christ is the end of the law, even as the law prods and pries and hammers us and Satan accuses us. We hear the law, Christ has already fulfilled you for my sake. It truly is finished. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus saves all who believe in him. Everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, who believes in their heart that Christ raised him from the dead, will be saved. As we sing in that great baptismal hymn, join me if you remember, I bet you know it from heart. All who believe and are baptized shall see the Lord's salvation. Baptized into the death of Christ, they are a new creation. Through Christ's redemption they shall stand among the glorious heavenly band of every tribe and nation. Grant this, Lord, to us all. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. <laughs>